Matthew 19, the Holy Scriptures read, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray as we begin. Father, we come before you asking that we would understand your word that it would penetrate our hearts. And Father, we pray again that if there's someone here today who still has a heart of stone, who hasn't by grace received a heart of flesh, we just ask today, Lord, that today would be the day of salvation for them, no matter how old or no matter how young they are. For all are called to believe on the name of Jesus. And so, Father, I just ask that you would work through me, help me to say your words, not mine, as revealed in your perfect and holy written word. Father, I pray for our church. Father, we have so much to do and so little time left. For it appears that Christ is coming very soon and we long and look forward to that day. So help us to be ready for that day. Help us to live our lives, not for the things of this world which grow strangely dim, but to live for the things to come, the unseen world, which will be here before we blink even. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Impossible, they said. Futile, they claimed. Unachievable, they cried. But not for this man, for he was determined to achieve the impossible. By jumping not just one bus, not just two buses, not even just 10 buses, but 22 buses. Making Evil Knievel look like a child by comparison. And so after prepping his bike... And practicing this maneuver until he had it down, the muscle memory was set. Javad Palisbanian lined his bike up with a watching crowd in an Iranian sports stadium to complete the jump that everybody told him was impossible. And so, setting off to prove these naysayers wrong, Javad lined up with the crowd watching, hit the jump, passed the first bus, passed the fifth bus, 
past the 10th bus until finally he hit and crashed into the 13th bus, dying. It's kind of a letdown, huh? And this proved that 22 buses was just too many buses to jump. In, a 2000, in 2015, an expert scuba diver named Doc Deep set out to accomplish the impossible by completing a dive that was deemed by many to be an impossible dive. And yet Doc Deep, an experienced scuba diver, was determined to accomplish the impossible. And so after two years of preparing and practicing, coupled with numerous years of his experience deep diving, Doc Deep set out upon the Virgin Islands to dive to an impossible depth. But then after 30 minutes in, he didn't resurface. And so the safety crew went out looking for him, discovering that Doc Deep had dove too deep and lost his life. 26-year-old Wu Yongnin was a renowned climber, not of mountains, not of hills or trees, but of skyscrapers. Nicknamed China's first rooftopper, you guys know where this is going already, right? Wu had a passion for free solo climbing, which is when you climb without any safety gear whatsoever. And even though your chances of reaching retirement are about zero in this profession, Wu was determined to climb one of China's largest skyscrapers, a 62-story building, in order to create a viral video for his growing and captivated audience. But then suddenly, in the midst of this extremely difficult, near-impossible climb, you guessed it, Wu suddenly lost his grip and fell to his death with his fans watching in horror. You know, when it comes to trying to accomplish impossible things, there is no shortage of participants. And while we normal human beings, we look at things like this and think not a chance in the world would I ever even stand close to the edge there, uh, there's many life-gambling daredevils like Doc Deep or China's first rooftop, rooftopper in our world. And yet we look at these people and we wonder how they could ever be so foolish to think that they could make the impossible possible. However, here's the thing. The truth is, inside of every single person's heart is a foolish spiritual daredevil who is seeking to achieve the impossible. What am I talking about? I'm talking about being good enough to enter the kingdom. I'm talking about thinking that we can, by our own works of righteousness, achieve and inherit eternal life. But as we see with Jesus' interaction here with the rich rung ruler in Matthew 19, he's showing him that religious obedience is an impossible feat of accomplishing righteousness with. You can't do it. For it's a challenge that could not accomplish this, not even in a million lifetimes lived. Not even a million lived. You won't even come close to scratching the surface for the righteousness that you need to inherit eternal life. And yet, as we just mentioned, this challenge is something every single one of us is born into accepting in one way or the other, even though it is totally impossible. In Matthew 19, we find this story of the rich young ruler, which is a story that appears actually in all three of the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's a story with a tragic ending, just like the story here with these three, at least in this passage. And here's why. Because after striving to be good enough for the kingdom of heaven, he fails and he comes to realize his failure. And yet through his failure, we have the benefit of learning how we might be good enough for the kingdom, how we might inherit eternal life. And that comes by three ways. First, we must recognize the need for goodness. Secondly, the impossibility of goodness. And third, the only possibility of goodness. 
So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 19, and we're going to start in verse 16, and we'll continue on through verse 30. When it comes to being good enough for heaven, when it comes to reaching nirvana or enlightenment, as some religions see it, every single religion on the planet, bar one, or at least we should say bar mostly one, believes that this achievement is impossible through human effort. Only one of them thinks it's impossible through human effort. All the rest think that you can do it through human effort. And here's how the formula works. You do more good things plus less bad things, and you're a godly person, right? That's a pretty simple formula. It makes sense, right? The idea is to basically build your spiritual or religious or moral resume, and if you make it impressive enough, well, then of course you're a good person, and God will have to hire you. He will have to accept that resume, And so what we naturally do is we spend our lives trying to be good enough. And the metric for determining whether we're good enough, what is it? Is it God and his holiness? No, it's not. It's each other. And this is pretty easy because we can look around and easily find those that we are much better than when it comes to this moral and religious obedience. See, in our mind, God grades on a a curve. And so all we have to do is be better than the average bear to earn a seat on the bus to heaven. And this is the default mentality. We all naturally think this way. So much so that you will often even sadly find this mentality showing up in evangelical Bible preaching churches on a regular basis. And this is sad because Christianity is the only religion that is not like the rest. Christianity is the only religion that's not a religion. Why do I say that? Well, because Christianity is a religion technically, but it's not based upon that scale system at all. It's just not. Christianity, you know what it tells us? It says that one sin, even a little tiny white lie, that doesn't exist, but even if it did, even a tiny little white lie will damn you to an eternity in hell. It will get you kicked off of the bus forever and you will not be allowed back on, no matter how much religious or moral effort you give. And so the only way back on, Christianity says, is how? By the grace of God through the perfect life of Jesus, the life that you and I should have lived and the death that he died, which he did not deserve, but you and I all deserved. That's the only way. And yet, as we said, there's so many people, even within evangelical churches, who completely fail to understand this. Why do I say that? Well, I was one of them for a time. And I know some of you were as well, because you've told me it. And I venture to say there's some here today who also are still in this same boat, who are trusting in their works of righteousness not Christ's righteousness. Now, maybe you don't outright say or even think that you were or are doing this, and it usually works like this. You'll say something like, you know, I understand Jesus had to die for me. I get that, but I still have to do my part, okay? I got to pay my fair share when it comes to the salvation thing to get on this bus. And what this looks like is a Christian who bases their acceptance before God on how well they are doing. It's a performance metric. If you do well enough, God will love you and accept you and bless you and give you a happy life. But if you don't, he'll do the other thing. That's the way we naturally think. And this is why we so often find churches that are filled with one of two people who are thinking this way. There's two, there's two possible results of this. One, you become prideful, you become puffed up, and you start to think, wow, look at the rest of you yahoos. I'm way better than you. Or if you're one of the yahoos, what do you start to think? Man, I can't believe, man, I can't even believe they let me in the door here. What? I, I, don't, I shouldn't be here. I should go home. And so all of, both of these thinking, though, leave us off of the bus. 
they leave us stranded, not on our way to heaven, because we are trusting in our righteousness, though it affects us in two different ways, either through pride or through Eeyore groveling. Either way, at the core of this problem lies the same question that this rich young ruler came and asked Jesus in verse 16. And look what he says. What good deeds must I do to have eternal life? How much is enough? And that answer is so very often, yes, trust Jesus, but you got to do your part. But here's the thing. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to what Christianity teaches about the gospel, the only thing that I or you bring to the table when it comes to my salvation is my sin. That's it. That's all I have to offer. I can't, and if I come with my sin plus some of my righteousness and say, here, will this get me in? You know what God says? He says, no. It is faith alone you are saved by. And in the book of Galatians, what does Paul say about adding works, even a little bit of works to that? What does he say? He says, it's another gospel. He says that if anyone preaches any such thing, let them be accursed, even if them or an angel from heaven. And when we forget this, we've taken our eyes off of Christ and we've put them back onto ourselves in which there is no hope. And this is exactly what this rich young ruler was doing. The truth is, which within every single human heart lies a little rich young ruler who is crying out, asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But it wants to inherit it on its own terms, not God's terms. It says, how much is enough? How much do I really have to give you, God, to get you off my back so I can do the things in life that I really want to do? 10%? I've heard about a tithe. Can I do that? Is that enough? We ask this question because we recognize that there's something deeply wrong within each of us. The truth is we all know to at least some level there's something deeply wrong inside of us. We know that we aren't as good of a father or a mother as we should have been. We know that when it comes to being a good husband or a good wife, we're not the one we should have been. We aren't as good of a friend as we should have been. We haven't cared about the poor enough. We all know deep down, if we're honest, that we spend way too much time being preoccupied with ourselves and not enough time caring about the needs of others. And yet we continue on striving to achieve the impossible all the same. I like what the 18th century pastor and theologian Jonathan Edwards once said. He said this, he said, our good works can no more get us into heaven than a spider's web can slow a falling rock. You can sit there and spend your lives trying to be as moral as Mother Teresa to try to build this spider web of good works to prevent that coming boulder, which is called the wrath of God. You can do that your entire life and it's not even going to slow it down for even a millisecond. And this is because it's completely impossible to be good enough for the kingdom, which leads us to our second point. To be good enough for the kingdom, we must recognize first the need for goodness and secondly, the impossibility of goodness. In response to the rich young ruler's question, Jesus asks him his own question. He says, why do you call me good? For there is only one who is good, and that is God, God himself. This is a little bit ironic, actually, because Jesus knew what this, man, what this man apparently didn't know, which was that Jesus was actually God. He was good, so it was actually fine to call him good teacher. But then he doesn't expound upon that any further. Without missing a beat, Jesus goes on to answer the man's questions, but look how he answers it. He doesn't answer it according to Ephesians 2. He doesn't answer it according to John three sixteen. right? He answers the man's question according to this young man's own terms. And what are the rich young ruler's terms. Look at verse 17. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, okay, I'll play that game with you. 
keep all the commandments. Now, is Jesus lying to him? No, he's not. Paul makes this abundantly clear in Romans that if somebody was able to fully obey God's law and not sin, they would be worthy of eternal life. They absolutely would. However, not a single person can do this. But this gets the rich young ruler thinking, okay, Jesus, which ones? How many? How much is enough? And so Jesus then responds, listing off of the list uh, of the commandments that are found on the second tablet, because the tablets divided, the Ten Commandments are divided into two tablets. You got the first five and the, and the last ones, okay? And he lists them off don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, and don't bear false witness. And notice what's last honor your father and your mother, except for that one should be at the top of the list, shouldn't it? If you know the Ten Commandments, you know he put this out of order. And most commentators and theologians will say that's not unintentional. Jesus is doing this for a purpose, most likely. Well, what purpose might that be? Well, do you remember back in uh, back earlier chapters of Matthew, we learned about Korban? What was Korban? It was a system where, okay, let me back up. So the Jewish people, when their parents got old and they needed someone to take care of them, it was their responsibility to use their finances, to use their money to take care of old mom and dad. Except for the religious leaders came up with a little sneaky man-made system, a little man-made law, which said, all you have to do is say Korban, which simply means what I have, I have designated to God. And you didn't even have to give it to God immediately. You could spend your whole life buying boats and tree, you know, houses and tree houses, whatever you want. You could spend on yourself. And they thought that this was morally okay. And that's where we saw back then, Jesus was like, your man-made rules stink. They're awful. This is not of God. You hold the commandments of men as if they are commandments of God. And so most commentators think, all right, look, we look at this. It seems like he's got an idol problem. It seems like he's got a problem of envying other things. But might it be possible that he has a Corban issue going on here? And Jesus is highlighting that specific point about him not honoring his father and mother. Could be, we don't know for certain, but it certainly would make sense, especially in this culture where when people became as rich as someone like this did. Now, what Jesus is doing here, though, regardless of all that, is he's setting this man up to realize something. He's setting this man up to realize that he is lacking something he desperately needs. And this guy doesn't realize this yet because in verse 20, look what the man says. I mean, this is brash. All things I have kept from my youth. All these things. Like, really? Let's get your mom and dad over here and find out if that's the, tr- if that's the truth. They'll break that illusion real fast. The level of spiritual blindness here is remarkable. His lack of self-awareness makes jumping too many buses or climbing too high of skyscrapers look like a minor oversight. But does Jesus correct him here? No, he doesn't. He goes on to reveal the man's idolatry in a unique and clever way where he cannot deny it. Look at verses 21 and 22. Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when this man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So what's Jesus doing here? Because if you've heard this passage preached, a whole lot of guys turn this into something that's not what Jesus is doing. So what's he doing here? Is Jesus saying that having money is sinful and so you better give it all away if you want to go to heaven? Is, he, is Jesus preaching the opposite of the prosperity gospel, which is called the poverty gospel? Is that what he's pushing? No, he's not. What Jesus is doing is he's using the law the way that the law was meant to be used. And how is the law meant to be used? It's a mirror. You hold it up and you see your reflection in order to be able to tell how dirty you are. See, if you don't have a mirror, you have no idea how disheveled you look in the morning. You're just guessing. 
But that's what a mirror does. And so Paul talks about this at great lengths in the book of Romans, how the law is a mirror which cannot save us, but shows us our need to be saved. And so by pointing this young man to the law, Jesus isn't showing him how to be saved. Jesus is showing him that he needs to be saved. And you get that backwards. I mean, that's, that's a big problem. And so many do, sadly. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus is showing this man not how to be saved, but that he needs to be saved. See, here's a man who foolishly thinks he can accomplish the impossible or the unaccomplishable. I think that's a word. He thinks he can be good enough to inherit eternal life, which is absolutely impossible. And why do I say that? I say that because the Bible says that over and over and over. Look at Romans 3.20. I'll put it up here for us. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law, there's the mere thing again, comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified, which simply means you're made right before God by faith apart from works of the law. How about Galatians 2.16? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. It blows my mind how many professing Christian groups out there will say faith plus works. It just, like, it's all around us. Like, it just continually blows my mind. Over and over and over, Scripture is clear. Works aren't going to cut it. They're filthy rags. And just in case this is not enough, remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 5 in his Sermon on the Mount, where he shockingly said to the crowds that were listening, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, how great does your righteousness have to be? greater than the scribes of the Pharisees. And these people were like the Navy SEALs when it comes to obeying the law. They were good at it. Yeah, they were hypocrites, but guess what? So are all of us. They were hardcore about it. And so when the crowd heard this, they most likely thought, well, if they can't do it, then, you know, the disciples question, who then can be saved? If they can't do it, who can? And the answer, of course, is not a single one. Not a single person can. And James says this, the half-brother of Jesus, in James 2.10, he says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point is guilty of all of it. You could be the most moral person there is, and you sin one time, you're off the bus. And what was this young man guilty of here? Well, it might have been the Corban thing. But not only was he for sure guilty of pride and self-righteousness, but he was clearly guilty of idolatry as seen in his love for money. And that absolutely barred him from having a righteousness of his own, which would allow him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, wait, wait, wait. We just said that no one can enter the kingdom of heaven by law keeping. Okay, so why does that keep him out? Like, where's the grace, Jesus? Where's, where's the John three sixteen? What's going on here? Well, this keeps him out for two reasons. Not because he failed to uphold the law perfectly, but it keeps him away from grace, we should say, for two reasons. And the first reason is that he can't accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior because he's already got a Lord and Savior. And what is it? It's money. That's his Lord and Savior. And here's the thing. You can only have one Lord and Savior. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 6? Here's what he said. No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying that you cannot come to him as Savior unless you bow the knee to him also at the same time as Lord. It doesn't work any other way. 
which is sad when you think of how many people are trusting in a powerless, incapable of saving gospel. A gospel that cannot save because it's an idolatrous gospel. This happens when somebody gets up before a crowd and they say, you know what? God loves you and he has a perfect plan for your life. Just say yes to Jesus. Just add Jesus. He wants to come in. He wants to shine things up. You, you don't even know how great it will be. Just, just add Jesus. However, when you come to Jesus for the healing instead of the healer, you're not adding Jesus, okay? That's not how it works. You're not adding Jesus to your life. What are you actually doing first before you can add Jesus? You're subtracting something. What are you subtracting? The idols of your life. You're saying the idols of my life, which are my savior and my king that I am serving, I am exchanging those in to serve Jesus. Biblically, this is a word called repentance, which is why over and over through the gospels, what did, what did John the Baptist start with that led to what Jesus went on to say? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's no easy way around this. When you come to accept Jesus, you must repent, turn from your idol worship to the only one and true God. Now, when we repent, does this mean that we have to clean our lives up, that we have to become sinless, that we have to have all of our ducks in a row before we can accept Jesus? Like he has to be the complete 100% total sovereign Lord of our life and there's never any doubt about it? Yeah, right. We don't even come close to that. That's impossible. Nobody can do that but it does mean that our disposition changes as in repentance, what do we do? We turn from trusting in all of the lesser gods of this world and instead turn and look to Jesus as we trust in him alone to save us. It's really that simple. We stop looking to our money to make us happy. We stop looking to our family, our friends to make us, we stop looking to ourselves and our own righteousness to save us. Do you realize how idolatry works? See, it's not just, you know, setting up this nifty-looking totem or something and bowing down to it. It's not how it works. We're having a little small Buddha idol. That's partly how it works, but that's not the only way it works. Idolatry is looking to someone or something to be our Lord and Savior. It's looking to someone or something to be our identity, to be the thing in our life that gives its meaning to be the thing in our life that gives us purpose, to give us value, to give us self-worth, that makes us say, you know what, I'm really not quite so bad as the rest of these people. It's what, that's what idol, idolatry is. But here's the thing, not a single person or thing in the world is capable of doing that. It's impossible. And yet we all naturally strive to accomplish the impossible task of finding meaning and joy in created things instead of the creator who is forever blessed. For some of us, like the rich young ruler, we look to financial security. We think that money will be able to take care of any medical bills that we might need in order to save our lives. Uh, we think that it'll make us happy, that we'll be able to buy that boat, buy the nice house, buy the cabin, all these things. And once we have that, then I can live my life and find joy. And yet when that comes, what so often happens? It's a letdown. Every time I get a new iPhone, I'm like, yeah, this is gonna be awesome. The new iPhone's fast. And then I get it about two weeks later, I don't even think about it. That's how this works. For some of us, we look to romantic relationships or even close friendships or even our parental relationships with our children. Some of us look to our physical health, maybe our beauty and our good looks. However, all of it fades. None of it lasts. And none of it can save us. None of this can satisfy our need for the true goodness that we need in our lives. 
Not one of them can fill the, the God-shaped hole that's in our hearts, no matter how rich we are, no matter how many friends and family members we have and how good those relationships are, no matter how good-looking we are, none of it is going to do it. The thing is, idols make terrible masters, but they also make terrible saviors as well. I was reading this week about a man who was completely obsessed with the Red Sox. I mean, he was a, he was a fan's fan. He was deeply into the Red Sox, so much so that he basically structured his entire life around the Red Sox schedule. If they were playing, nope, no dinner plans, honey. I'm watching the Red Sox game. Oh, nope, can't go. There's, there's preseason games. I got to watch those. I want to watch the practice. And even when there weren't games, he was reading up over and over about the stats, about the potential trades. He was doing fantasy league, all this stuff. It was consuming his life. But eventually this hobby, as it began to destroy his life and led to him risking losing his loved one, his wife, a good friend came to him and he said, you know, you love the Red Sox so much, but have they ever loved you back? No, not at all. And yet he would continue to pour his life, his worship even, that's what that is, it's worship. He would pour his worship into the Red Sox and he never received so much as an ounce of love back. The truth is, idols never love us back. They take, they take, and they take, and they offer us nothing but misery and despair. All idols are cruel and wretched taskmasters. Maybe you think, boy, preacher, I'm sure glad I don't have any idols. Man, that sounds awful. Really? Are you so sure? Before we jump to conclusions here, might we put ourselves in the place of this rich young ruler and do a little bit of self-examination here? When it comes to idolatry, or what is actually your true religion, what you're truly worshiping, I like what the Archbishop William Temple once said. Here's what he said. He said, your religion is what you do in your solitude. Did you catch that? Your religion is what you do in your solitude, in your free time, when you aren't having to be preoccupied with something that's a requirement in your life. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying that what you spend your time thinking of when you don't have any other obligations is the truest revealer of what your God is. Jesus tells us that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the greatest commandment. All of the laws and the prophets fall under that one and the second one, which is love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, So we are called to worship God is what that's saying. And one of the clearest ways to determine what we are worshiping is to look and examine what we are doing in our solitude. And so the question is, is your free time spent thinking on fishing or spent thinking on the things of God? Is much of your free time spent on money, on your job, your career, your romantic relationships, or your hobbies? Or do you spend it thinking on God because God is the true desire of your heart? All right, preacher, that's impossible, though. No one can truly love God that way, not even you. Don't you realize that what you're asking here is impossible? I do. But guess what? So does Jesus. Which is why in verse 23 and 24, he turns to his disciples and look look what he says here. Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying that it's impossible for a rich person to get in heaven. That's his point. And make no mistake, every single one of us in this room qualifies as a rich person. I don't care how low your income might be. Because the truth is, in America, in in modern day America, every single one of us are little kings and queens, no matter how poor you are. None of us go hungry. Not in this room. None of us, uh, none of us, (laughs) that wasn't meant to be funny. (laughs) The point is, we're all little kings and queens who have whatever we want. We have microwaves that cook our food in seconds. We have toilets and running water that have made King Solomon and all of his riches envious. He surely would have been envious of what we have, even with that two-bedroom, one-bedroom apartment. And so Jesus' point should hit us very close to home here, which is that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I'm sure some of you have heard this before. Some preachers will say, all right, let me tell you about this whole eye of the needle thing. Here's what this is. Uh, it's not as bad as it sounds. Okay? It's, it's not a literal needle and you got to you know, get that big, huge camel through it. That's not what it's talking about. Here's what this was. See, the eye of the needle, there was, when you had a city and the gate was around it, they would shut those gates at night. And in the very back of it, they had this little hole, like, not a little hole, but it was like a little passageway that you could get through for, you know, you have to duck your head and go through. And if you wanted to get a camel through, what'd you have to do? Well, you have to get that camel down on its knees and have to like shimmy itself right through that little hole. But you could do it. It'd be a lot of work. The camel's not going to be happy about it. But if you tried hard enough, you could get that thing through there. And so if we interpret it that way, what Jesus is really saying is that it is totally possible for a rich person to be saved if they will just humble themselves and work really hard to pass through the gate. The only problem with that is that explanation is totally made up and has nothing to do with this text. It comes, there's like zero historical evidence for this. Uh, And it actually turns this totally backwards on what Jesus' true point is. It turns it totally upside down. Because after Jesus says this, what are the disciples? They say, oh man, we better get some knee pads for our camels. No, they say, who then can be saved? And that's the right question because it's not talking about a little back door in a castle. It's talking a castle wall. It's talking about getting a huge beastly camel, which was the largest beast that they knew of in their day and in their geographical area, getting that huge beast right through the eye of a literal needle in which you would rightly say, hey, that's impossible. Who then can be saved? It's impossible because no person is good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's Jesus's point. So is that it? Game over? We all go to hell, let's pack it up and go home and stop worshiping on Sundays, live, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? No. Look at verse 26. But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible, including getting the camel through the eye of a needle. And Jesus said this because he knows that there's only one possible path in order to accomplish this. And this leads us to our final point. To be good enough for the kingdom, we must recognize the need for goodness, the impossibility of goodness, and finally, the only possibility of goodness. In Luke chapter 19, we find another rich young man. I don't know if he was young, but he was a rich man, named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, I learned about this as a boy, climbed up into a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up into the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you all know it, good job. And so Zacchaeus, a rich and vile tax collector, in fact, 
Luke tells us he was the chief tax collector, did come down and went with Jesus as all the self-righteous people stood there muttering, he has gone to be the guest of sinners. And indeed Jesus has, for that's the reason he came. He came, as Luke tells us, to seek and save the lost. And in response to Jesus, look what Zacchaeus says. I'll tell you. He says, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay them back four times the amount. And in response, Jesus says something remarkable. He says, the camel has passed through the eye of the needle. For today, salvation has come to this house. And right there, that rich man inherited eternal life. Why? Because he gave up half of his possessions? By these great and wonderful works of humility as he got that camel down on its knees and shimmied it through through great effort? No, that's impossible. Zacchaeus received eternal life because he received Jesus as his Lord and Savior, which is the only possible way to be good enough for the kingdom. In Mark's account of the rich young ruler, it says that Jesus looked upon this rich man and he loved him. That's remarkable. He knew full well that this guy was going to turn at the end of that conversation and walk away, and yet he loved him. Which means, and this is is remarkable, here we find a God that finally loves us back. The idols don't love us back, but here we find the one true God which does love us back. He loved us so much that he gave up everything in order to bring us that love, even to the point of death on a cross. The scriptures say that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And why did he do that? Because he recognized that we had a great need for goodness. He recognized also that it was impossible for us to attain that goodness. And third, he recognized that the only possibility of goodness would come through his perfect life, which we should have lived, and his death on the cross, which he didn't deserve, which you and I did. Christ's goodness alone makes the the ungodly godly. He alone allows us rich sinners to inherit eternal life. After our membership class yesterday, it was pointed out to me that there's a pretty compelling evidence here to suggest that this rich young ruler's life didn't, and though it ended here sadly, ultimately it didn't end sadly in his life. In fact, it seems that this man would later return to Christ and trust in him just as Zacchaeus did. And not only that, he would remarkably go on, his name was John Mark, history tells us, to write the gospel of Mark, which would then be a light to all the other rich young rulers in this world who needed what he finally found. And what a powerful testimony to the grace of God who alone can make a rich man or a rich woman pass through the eye of a needle into eternal life, which is an eternal life that is beyond our wildest imaginations. An eternal life that makes the things of this world look like straw and stubble compared to the gold of the kingdom which is why Jesus briefly describes in verses 27 through 30, he talks about how all rich men and women who set aside their riches to seek Christ will find something remarkable, which is that in response, God will make them more rich than they ever could have fathomed with eternal riches. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says this, this is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. In the story of the rich young ruler, we find a Christ who only accepts little ones, not great ones, as the beginning of Matthew 19 talked about. He accepts them as little children, 
who humbly trust in him for a righteousness not of their own. And so the question is, have you come to trust in him? Have you come to see your great need for goodness? Have you come to see the impossibility of attaining that goodness on your own? And out of this, have you turned to the only one, the only good one, who alone can make us good, who alone can make the ungodly godly? I trust that you have, and if you haven't, today, why not today? Why not today be the day of salvation? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, thankful that the rich can be saved through your son. Though he was eternally rich, beyond our wildest imaginations, set all that aside so he could be humbly born in a manger so that he could live to die for the sins of us. Father, I pray for the one here today who does not know Christ, who has not come to trust in his righteousness, who is still living for the idols of this world, whether it be their work, their career, their family, their friends, money, whatever. Help them to see that idols make cruel taskmasters and horrible saviors, for they will all lead us to eternal destruction in the wrath to come. Father, I pray for our church. Make us strong. Help us to live in light of the gospel truth. Help all of our actions to be an outflow of it. Help us to forgive one another because you forgave us. So Father, help us to pass that on out of our desire to bring glory to your name and thankfulness for what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.